Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is CLSY Radio Nowhere. Broadcasting <laughs> at 660 The Beacon. I'm Rick and here in the news chopper a mile above Drive-by Cinema is my co-host Paul. Hey, wait a minute. I, 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 why, why have you cast me as the, uh, as, as the, uh, the child botherer? <laughs> I'd forgotten that detail about that character. Okay, I'm, I, I'm your friendly child botherer. Look, I'm Paul and I'm here in the helicopter. Or not helicopter, I might just be in a van pretending it's a helicopter. Parked on Pendle Hill. Hopefully it's not a white van that, that takes your children away, but maybe it is. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, so welcome to Pontypool 2008. Is that right, Richard? That's the film this week. A cautionary tale of post-structural French philosophy. It's how <laughs> I read it, but maybe I got it wrong. Well, before we do Pontypool, we have to address any issues or corrections. Go on, then. Well, well I've... No, I mean, I don't have any corrections, I think. I had some good feedback from uh-huh. some of our recent episodes, just to, you know, just to counteract the criticisms that we've had. I know some of our listeners... We only had one strong criticism. Yeah. And it was fairly... That we've heard about. It was fairly legitimate. It was. Well, I don't know. You poo-pooed the, the whole criticism, didn't you? You said that it was justified because the film was crap. Oh, well, yeah. But people have been enjoying stories of you getting erections on diving boards. No, I sorry. Didn't, I didn't get an no, erection no, on diving boards. Sorry. No, erections because of cats or kittens pouring at your groin. Well, I didn't enjoy that experience. I was horrified by it. Okay. No, it clearly made an impression. That's what my lawyers told me to say. <laughs> so if you have any more stories like that, that's I think that's the furrow that we're plowing. Oh, embarrassing self-confession. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not above that. <laughs> Paul, you were just saying you were about to have a midlife crisis. I think we all have midlife crises, but... A midlife crisis that leads to a midlife meltdown. Meaningful change. It's what we call it these days, yeah. But didn't it used to be, like in our father's age, like standing naked except for our socks on the front lawn shouting at the Ford Escort that we're not going to drive to work today? (laughs) You know, good old-fashioned, not meltdowns, but breakdowns. You don't see much of the midlife midlife breakdown anymore, do you? What was the sitcom... Starring Leonard Rossiter, where the guy leaves his clothes on the beach and swims. Oh, in sickness. You know that one? I mean. No, that's that's Michael Crawford, isn't it? I do know which one you mean. It's not some mothers do have them. That's that's Michael Crawford too. Yeah. What about it, Richard? Well, that was a midlife crisis, wasn't it? Do, was he trying to pretend he was dead? Was he faking his own suicide? Uh, rising Dam. No. No. The fall and rise of Reginald. It's of Perrin. Reginald Perry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so fall and rise is alluding to his erectile dysfunction, presumably. Is it and how he gets his mojo back? Is that what it's about? Is is that a thinly veiled subtext, or is it not thinly veiled? There's some echoes of that. Was it Lord Lucan? Yes. No, it was Lord Lucan. a deliberate thing of of that actually happening. Yeah, Lord Lucan did disappear, or not disappear, or not die, or whatever. Because he yeah, had... left his clothes on a beach, was never heard of from again. Wasn't, yeah. the, wasn't the guy in Manic Street Preachers, did he do a similar thing, or am I imagining that? Ah, 
Now, the guy in Manning Street Preachers just disappeared over Newport Bridge, didn't he? Some evidence has recently come to light this last year about the fact that he crossed it at a certain time because of the ticket that was found or something. There's a ticket right. found in a car. Because there are no CCTVs around at that day. Very few CCTVs. There's very very little CCTV footage in, the, in that era, wasn't there? So, yeah, he disappeared around a bridge in in Wales. Most interesting thing about that band, if you ask me. And, and hasn't there haven't really been many fan sightings at all, have there? So. Yeah, you'd think by now we would have heard, wouldn't we? We've heard, yeah. It's difficult to disappear, isn't it? I've been listening to some podcasts about people who've disappeared completely, or people who have been trying to evade the law. Ah, so they haven't really disappeared. They've tried to make themselves disappear. Yeah, there's a podcast called Manhunt, where the guy who used to be on Hunted, that reality TV show where people try and and disappear. KGB officers. Yeah, Peter Blexley was the cop who was on that, or ex-cop who was on that show. He has been doing this podcast where he's hunting a child killer from Liverpool called Kevin Paul. Why is he hunting him? Has this guy not lived out his his, uh, sentence? He was never convicted of it because... Oh, alleged child killer. Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's really any other suspect, realistically. But he was released on bail during the investigation when someone gave him a false alibi and was never captured again. Although he was implicated in a subsequent murder. Uh, But there's been sightings of him in Spain and in Thailand. This podcast was following the hunt that Peter Blexley was putting on. It's really good, but it was sort of interrupted by COVID and the lockdown. And he sort of stopped being able to go and travel and interview people. But it's worth checking out. Manhunt from from BBC BBC Sounds. All of which has absolutely nothing Nothing to do with this week's movie. Pontypool, 2008. Here's the music. Yeah, Pontypool, 2008. Cautioning tale of post-structural French philosophy, or maybe not. Maybe I had got the wrong end of the stick. Which end shall I have got, Richard, of this stick? It won't surprise you to learn, Paul, that this movie, I believe, was also made as a radio play by the BBC. Before or after? I th- sort of simultaneously, I think. not quite sure. Because it, it's, it takes place entirely within a radio station in a small Canadian Ontario town called Pontypool. Now, in the film version, we do see the newly arrived Dick Stichocki in his car. Mazzy Grant. Mazzy, yeah, approaching... Or Mazzy Grant or Grant Mazzy, I don't know. Oh, Grant Mazzy, yeah. Approaching the edge of town and being weirded out by a woman who mumbles the same word at him again and again and again through his windscreen kind of thing. But apart from that, it's pretty much all in... The radio station. Yeah, you're quite right. Just checking my notes. It's Grant Mazzy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Trust you to have written it down properly. Played by Stephen McHattie. Oh, so he did write some stuff down. He's got a great radio voice. Well, he's uh, he's essentially, if you might like it, a shock jock DJ, isn't he? He does resemble uh, Richard Hammond in the year 2048. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
He's more interesting than Richard Hammond would be, I think. Well, Richard Hammond used to be a DJ, radio DJ on Radio Radio Lancashire. On Radio Lancashire, really? Yeah. BBC Radio Lancashire? Yeah, he used to broadcast from Clitheroe. Wow. Did you used to listen to him? No. Hammy the Hamster. But great voice, right? Uh, Do you agree, Stephen? Who? Richard Hammond? Not Richard Hammond. No, I'm talking about... Stephen McCatty, who plays Grant Mazzy. Grant Mazzy, yeah. Yeah. Very good. I'd like to listen to him, you know. Kind of like uh, a cross between Leonard Cohen and the other guy who sings Pared Down Rock and Roll Blues. Is it J.J. Kale? Can't remember. Anyway, yeah. No idea, but that's the kind of thing we're going to get corrected on, isn't it? Yeah. Now... <laughs> Radio 660. Radio Don't 660. Don't touch that exactly. dial, yeah. Has he... He's been fired from another station. Is that what we're led to believe at the start? And he's yeah. newly arrived at Pontypool. Is that what's going on here? I mean, the guy's an ageing DJ uh, of a shock jock variety. You know, late 50s, early 60s, late 60s potentially. He's obviously come to the end of his career, but he's still something of a celebrity. You know, the station manager says, you know, our listeners are really, you know, are really waiting to hear you. I mean, given his personality as we see it, you know, he's obviously had a running at his previous station. Whether he's left or got fired is, is by the by. But yeah, he's he's moving from one position to the next. Because yeah. he's on his phone to his agent quite a lot, isn't he? Yeah. Rick, I think his agent on the phone. Because because of the era this is set, it's not a smartphone. It's an old, it's an old flip phone, isn't it? What era is it set in? It was released in two thousand and nine, wasn't it? No way. Yeah, and they say that their studio is in an old church because some of them are sat on pews at one point, aren't they? It's quite a stylish set. Well, isn't that what all radio stations do? Is they inhabit converted, converted Methodist chapels? <laughs> I remember when I was in, uh, like in a fledgling indie punk band, uh, we used to record in a converted church. You were in a fledgling indie punk band? Yeah. Was this before or after the K-pop boy band? Oh, way before that. Right, I mean, okay. I, like, I only went for the K-pop auditions for, for comedy fact, the fact I would have been the oldest, the oldest <laughs> K-pop performer by, by a mile, you know. So the indie indie pop rock band was a genuine... You were in the right demographic. genuinely absolutely. adolescent yeah. at the time, yeah. I see, I see. Perhaps belatedly, a case of arrested development. I was 22, maybe. You know, a little late to be getting into starting with a band. But but no, within, within the right demographic, yeah. And that was in a converted chapel. And do you have any... Tracks that you laid down, if that's the right No, but I know a man that might have. And he might be coming on our podcast next week, so or the week after. So so ears peeled. Maybe he can dig out some of the terrible, terrible music we used to make. Yeah, it's got to happen, hasn't it? We've got to hear that. That's Please amazing. No. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember some of the lyrics, which I didn't write. <laughs> All right, so... What's happening in Pontypool? It's the middle of the night, or early morning. It's very early morning, isn't it? He's the yeah. He's arriving in the dark, and he does indeed speak to the reporter in the helicopter, who isn't really in the helicopter. He's in the studio with his technical backup, Laurel Ann, and his producer, whose name is something else. Uh, the producer's name is Laurel Ann Drummond. 
And uh, the technical cowgirl, as he calls her, is Sydney Breyer. No, I think you got that the wrong way around. His producer is Sydney Breyer. I'm sorry. And the, the other girl, the younger girl, yes, is... Yes, technical cowgirl is Laurel, Laurel Andrand. And. Here's something that will amaze you. The actors that play Sydney and Grant... Yeah. Married. What? Yeah. The husband and wife. Before or after the movie? I don't know, but they are married. No way. Pretty cool, eh? That's kind of creepy. Oh. Because they have chemistry on screen, don't they? I mean, they do kiss at one point in the film. Spoiler alert, don't they? Well, kill is kiss and kiss is kill. Kill is kiss, yeah. And it is, in French-speaking Ontario... What will we expect? Words don't mean things. Words do mean things. Word means opposite opposite things. Words are mimetic. Oh, Hold on a second. Is Ontario French speaking? Oh, potentially. I'm not so sure. It's not in Quebec, is it? It's in. Sorry, Quebec is French speaking. Yeah. Hence the hence their need to find a translator when this when French was being spoken. That's right. They basically don't seem to know it, except they do. I mean. Sydney seems to know it a little bit, and then they do speak French later, don't they? But not very well. Well, there's a whole TikTok meme compilation, isn't there, about French words being gibberish? And this later becomes relevant in this movie. No spoiler alert just yet. But there's a there's a there's a phrase ton 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 ton. <laughs> you know that one? Oh, yeah, the, the current phrase where they translate a series of individual words. Yeah, ton 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 ton. <laughs> Which means your tuna is cut by your uncle. And then there's another one which is foie, 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 foie. What does that mean? Hay, liver, faith, hair, times, or something. <laughs> foie, 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 foie. Yeah. And then there's another one which is dam, dan, 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 dan. What, what does that mean? Your time skin tone has tintin. Dan, 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 dan. Yeah. Have you not seen all these? They're really, really popular. They're just I so popular. I mean, and I... then, there's, then there's one more, which is... Oh, God, what is it? It's... On quan, 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 quan. On quan, 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 quan. What goose on the corner speaks through... Something or other. I can't, my French is not good. And finally, there's like, meh, 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 meh. There's lots of them anyway. Do so you get the idea, which is that it's French, you know, words could be other words and, and could mean other things. Except there's a virus going on through this whole movie and it's not French, it's English, it's the problem. Now, yes. I think this is highly inaccurate because I've just demonstrated, you know, you can say anything in French repeatedly and you can make whole sentences from it, a gibberish, you know. <laughs> Whereas, although English is a very, very large language, we have a ridiculous number of words. And I think this, this is what they're getting to, is the idea that we have a superfluous number of words. I think 600,000, 800,000 in the last count of the dictionary. Uh, there's so much superfluous wordage and verbiage in English that, you know, are we losing sight of what words mean? This somehow becomes relevant in this movie. I don't, I don't know how to explain how it becomes relevant, but it does. Without use of any post-structuralist French philosophy. Because, of During... course, we're not talking about French problems in Quebec. <laughs> no. During the morning, 
Grant is receiving information, isn't he? News flashes. Yes. Of strange things happening around strange the tiny things town happening. of Pontypool. Particularly from the copter, from the helicopter. Yeah. The first thing I think is, well, they say auspiciously near the start, something's always about to happen. They get a call, a news flash, about a riot at a doctor's office. And actually, actually in a place called Sandy Hook, which is a name to conjure with, isn't it? Presumably this is before the Sandy Hook shootings happened. But anyway, at the beginning of the movie, they start saying Pontypool, and Pont means bridge, and bridge means pool, and Pont, pool, Pont, pool. Yeah, so they do go on this French tip of French words meaning other things, but they don't later pursue. So that's what that's what put me off to researching the TikTok memes where French can mean anything. So that's what kind of made me think, oh gosh, we're in Quebec. Oh, that's the that's the the bit where they talk about the bridge, the Pont, Pont, something or other. That that's the story of Honey the Cat missing, isn't it? Yeah, and they said at some point words meld and emotions mix into words and this kind of thing. So it's it's setting us up, I think, for what's going to come later, obviously. But yeah, so now he's settling into his job. He's having a bit of frisson with his uh, producer. You know, he's a strong personality, and she's the kind of lady. That it runs a, runs her studio probably you know in a pretty ship shape manner, but span it in the works. All this weird stuff's happening on outside. So what's all that about? As this information is coming to him over the news wire, or I think they get a phone call from a policeman at, at one point, who he is accusing of being an alcoholic and drinking on the job, <laughs> uh, which is partly why Sydney, his producer, is so upset with him. But he's like, slow down, lady. He's like, slow down, lady. You know, I know how to get the listeners riled. I know what I'm doing. I'm setting them up for some anger so they're going to call in. They're going to become regular listeners. Just don't step on my toes. I've done this job for a long time kind of thing. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, so he's, he's insulting the police officer and alcoholic, which may or may not be true. And then, Richard, sorry, what happens? His producer is clearly pre-booked a slot whereby the local amateur dramatic society come in and sing a bit of opera. It seems to be like a family of a couple of kids and maybe their parents or something. And they're singing in blackface? Were they were they blacked up? They're all pretending to be uh, Middle Eastern. Yes, in Sandface. In Sandface, okay. And they were pretending to be Lawrence of Arabia and his ethnic companies. So, yeah. But it's 2008 and it was still acceptable by then, I think. And this is, I think, the first inkling of what's going on because at the end of the little song, which is excruciating and like something Alan Partridge would have to endure, the girl is speaking and she stops being able to say a particular word, doesn't she? She stutters on it. Pra, pra, pra. And she starts sticking and stuttering on a word. Yeah. That's right. It's the first inkling that there's something going on with the language. Mm. And she can no longer get her words out. And he, he gets this lot out of his studio because he's obviously embarrassed about putting this on in the middle of potentially important events. And they start hearing things about something happening at old people's home. Well, Code 48 on the police radio picked up by the technical cowgirl. So she gets in there. And then Ken Loney, we don't have, Ken Loney the guy in the sky... His transport helicopter. It turns out he's not in the sky at all. He's just uh, broadcasting from a truck. We don't really hear f- from Ken's sunshine chopper just yet, except for the producer say, hey, it's not real. 
But I did like uh, I did like Grant's radio show. It essentially involves him talking crap, <laughs> and he's very good at just waiting, extemporizing, extemporizing whilst you know the news is coming on the earpiece. That's right. Yeah. So like he was talking about you know it's really terrible weather out there. You know, SAD affective disorders could they be causing this bad weather? Let's hope for some industrial pollution coming from the south to, to put a stop to all this cold weather kind of thing. <laughs> you know, he's got a nice line uh, yeah. in, in, uh, in, 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 in talk show radio. So, yeah, so news starts coming in. They're listening in on the police radio. But as to what's going on, though, it's not particularly clear, is it? No, it's got lots of different things you hear about. Like there's a bunch of people at an old people's home repeating things, a herd of people near the forest, and then there's a story of... A couple of people trapped in a car under a mountain of people. That's right. Cogitate all of these weird incoming stories. BBC World call wanting information. And they have to give live on air with so BBC they share World. A, they share a live transmission, yeah. And they, they don't have any information. So, you know, what? what's Grant supposed to do? Well, bullshit's like a profession, doesn't it? Then they hear, oh no, their transmission is broken into by another broadcast. And a weird broadcast. Yeah, it speaks in French, and it sounds sort of official, I suppose, but it gives a French announcement, and then it cuts off, and they're back on Wait, air It, it says, do not, do not speak to close relatives. For your safety, please avoid oh. contact with close family members and terms of endearment, such as honey, sweetheart, blah, 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 should be avoided. Avoid the English language. Please do not translate this message. So at this point, yeah, it's deeply confusing. You're thinking, is this a false flag? Are these, you know, uh, Quebecan insurrectionists sending out false information? What's going on here? So doubly, triply confusing at this point, surely. None of it's clear. Important point, though. If you have something which you definitely don't want to be translated, the words, do not translate this message, should come at the beginning and not at the end of the message. Laurel Ann, she... Cheerfully translates it, doesn't she? Is she using Google Translate? I don't know, but she translates it uh, because they don't seem to otherwise understand it initially, which is odd because Sydney does speak French later. Ken comes back in the Sunshine Shopper at various points. First of all, uh, he report, reports on exploding people, and I think I think it's granted this point that first nods towards French post-structuralist thoughts and says Roland Barthes defined trauma as a news photo without a caption. Which is a very French post-structuralist <laughs> thing to do, and so so I was thinking, oh, I definitely hit the low stone. I know where this is going. This is going towards me, you know, Michael Foucault and, and epistemes <laughs> and you know ideas, the idea of the idea and this kind of thing. But no, it didn't go there. Spoiler alert. But anyway, so then Ken is breaking down on air as he's talking about naked cannibals and people trying to launch themselves into the ripped apart bodies of other people to commit suicide. And this is all kinds of madness going on. The terrifying reports coming through on there. Grant decides he needs to go outside. Maybe he wants to get breath of, breath of fresh air. But I think he also wants to see what is going on, trying to understand it. But as they open the doors, Sydney's not so sure they should be doing this. But people start coming towards them. And they close the doors. They start banging on the door. And they're repeating Sydney's words. Because she was saying, you know, come back in or whatever. They just repeat it now over and over. They do, yeah. yeah. So we're getting the idea more and more that this is something to do with phrases or language and repetition of that. 
certain words and keywords. So a zombie horde that can speak but can't speak very clearly kind of thing. Weird. A forensia of piranhas is how it was described. For the next bit of the, the radio program, they decide to do the obits. I guess they normally do the obituaries every day on this local radio program. <laughs> Except there's hundreds of them, yeah? Yeah, there's lots of them. And I guess they're all from people dying during the day. I don't know how they got the information so quickly. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to them. But that's not really the focus, is it? Because yeah. we're focused on Sydney and Laurel Ann. And they're discussing stuff. And at some point, Laurel Ann starts malfunctioning herself. She keeps saying that Mazzy's missing. Mazzy's missing. Mazzy's missing. 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 <laughs> so she's clearly caught this, like, mimetic virus. Which is the word that I think I used last week to describe this movie, Paul. Do you, would you agree that we're talking about a mimetic virus? Well, I don't know. What is a mimetic virus? Well, you know what a meme is, right? Yeah. Okay, do you want to explain it? A meme is simply... A recognisable, is it a kind of a figure of speech or not? I've forgotten. Well, it came from one of Dawkins' books, didn't it? The Selfish Gene, maybe? But he's trying to explain the idea of genes as a way of transferring information. Yeah. And that genes have the properties that they reproduce, they copy themselves, they copy themselves imperfectly. And that means you can get evolution of the genetic structures. Now, he wanted to... What we say, go viral these days, don't we, in simple terms. So Dawkins wanted to point out that those same principles could apply to things that weren't, that didn't happen to be DNA. Yes. It could apply to other things that had those same properties. And he'd, I guess, identified that ideas or thoughts, if you like, have the same basic properties in that they can be copied from one person to another, or even within yourself from one day to the next, I suppose. And they are copied imperfectly quite often. And consequently, they can evolve, they can change as well. And he used the term meme for, I guess it comes from a memory, doesn't it? And a gene mixed together. So I guess a meme is a trans transferable unit of an idea of concept. That can accommodate different forms of content, perhaps. There's an idea of... There's an idea of there's a variable or inheritable structure to it, but it's not a fixed idea, is it, as such? That's right. Because I think in modern day terms, we see it misapplied in terms of a, a very specific idea. And that's not really what a meme's about, I don't think. No, in, a meme could be conceived, anything. Uh, memes these days mean a pitch, a funny picture with a caption. Funny picture, yeah. <laughs> but as it was usually conceived, I think it was a, a broader idea than that. Absolutely. A meme could be a tune. Like a whistle tune, like, you know, Three Blind Mice. Or it could be a joke, couldn't it? Could very well be a, a joke or a limerick. Yes. It could be a way of doing or something. Or a set of limericks that feed off each other. Yeah. Kind of thing. So TikToks. Pipe. I think the, the TikToks viral series are an example of meme where people copy the same video but change it a little bit or copy yeah. the same idea or evolve it. That literally is a meme, yeah. There's the idea of doing that. Is a meme. Which is a meme, yeah. And then there's the individual instantiations of it, which are also memes. That meme about opening bananas from the other end. That's another meme, isn't it? And that's getting back, I think, very much to what Dawkins was getting at, in that cultural memes could also be a way for organisms to pass things on, I suppose. Yes. Like, monkeys could teach one another how to open bananas, and humans can teach one another. And hence we get to fuzzy areas like Young's cultural unconscious or I forgot what he called it collective unconscious yeah, yeah or, or the idea that there might be genetic inheritance to our unconscious kind of which is mental <laughs> no sure but yeah so that's a meme 
So it's a mimetic virus. This is the next leap, isn't it? A virus, as we know, we're all very aware, <laughs> is a tiny little package of genetic material. Not DNA, is it? It's RNA in a virus. But it ends up being genetic material in your cells, which, of course, causes you to produce proteins, which make you ill, etc. If genes have an equivalent in memes, the question is, is there a mimetic equivalent of a virus, a package of genetic material which is detrimental to the host? Is there something similar with a, with a meme? And some people say religion is a mimetic virus, right? You know, it's a complex of memes which propagate from one to another, usually because of a promise of eternal life or some such. It can be detrimental to people because it can make them do silly things like cut their hair in a particular way or dress in a certain way, which is, you know, has very little to do with whether or not you're going to live forever, does it? Let's face it. In this case, they're taking the idea of a meme very much more like a biological virus as mm. a concept or an idea that can get into your brain and make your brain malfunction in a very organic way. Or it could be. It's actually, a, you know, a physical virus uh, that has a mimetic effect. Yeah, okay. It could yeah, potentially be that, couldn't it? I suppose so. Although it seems to be transferred over the radio. Yes, yeah, so difficult for it to be. Makes it less credible to do that. Yes, yeah. But maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe you need to have the virus and also hear the word that like triggers the, words, the virus yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it makes the right bit of the, your brain fire off in the right way. Or it could be that the meme is actually undetectable sound vibrations that live inside the, the, the word of choice for a short time kind of thing. So in fact, it's not the word itself. That's just the, the envelope for, for more audio, more interesting audio phenomenon, if you like. A subliminal audio phenomenon that allows that allows it to become an earworm in your in your brain kind of thing and takes over your brain. Who knows? I mean, it's never they never explicitly address the nature of of this mimetic virus, do they? Because well, they're just radio presenters, so why would they? Now, however good they are at blagging to the BBC, they just don't know. And I think what the film does is it, it carries through that that sense of not knowing. You know, we feel very isolated as a viewer. We really feel we're with them in terms of what the hell is going on here. And that's the setting, you know, out in the middle of the Canadian winter. It would be pretty scary out there if the whole town suddenly went, went doolally. There's not a lot of people nearby to help you, are there? You've got to wait for the army to come in six hours or 12 hours later kind of thing. And I thought that sense of criticality, that it's up to them to, they're really all alone, you know, it's up to them to one, stay alive, and two, potentially resolve the situation. I thought that was quite well communicated in this movie. I do love this idea of a mimetic hazard, something that could be transmitted through information. Computer viruses are real, right? You can write a computer virus that propagates from computer to computer and can make a computer stop working or can allow a Trojan horse to infect it or something. This idea that you could do the same thing with brains is interesting. We can. Earworms are attested, aren't they? You know, they've looked some of the TED talks on on if they, if they physically represent in like a pivot table, but a coloured kind of cute pivot table, the notes in various hit songs that people all recognise as being earworms, and the structure is just beautiful, you know. And they can say we we can recognise if a song can become that kind of earworm hit. 
simply by looking at this color mapping, 2D color mapping representation of all the notes in the song. So on that level, I think earworms do exist, do they not? Have you heard of the McCullough effect, McCullough? No. So this is a genuine mimetic hazard. This is an image that can break your brain if you look at it. No. Say again, the the what, the McCullough? McCullough, M-C-C-O-L-L-O-U-G-H. Wow. Gosh. Do you want, should we have a look at it and see if it breaks our brain, or are you scared to? I, I'm not scared, now. What? You're just blasé about it. It's like you don't believe me. I don't believe you. I tell you there's an image that will break your brain, and you, you don't seem to care. I can't find it. Spell it again. M-C-C-O-L-L-O-U-G-H. And it's called the McCulloch meme, or the McCulloch... Effect. The McCulloch effect. That? That's just op art. That's operational art from the 1960s. Yeah, well, I'm telling you, it can break your brain. So How? The, it can g- give you an after image for a considerable period of time afterwards. For what? Two years? Three years? Five days. What? No way. 2,040 hours in one case, I think. The effect is remarkable because although dementia is rapidly repeated testing, it has been reported to last up to 2.8 months. Yes. And you're just like casually checking it out. Is there not like an antidote you can look at to get rid of it? I don't know. <laughs> where, where would you find that out? <laughs> so essentially for our listeners who don't have access to phones uh, at the moment, it's just a, it's just a simple uh, afterage effect. Uh, produced by operational art images, you know, strong geometric repeated linear patterns of various bright... It's black and white gratings, isn't it? Well, it can be green and black or red and black. Yeah, gratings, striking, striking, uh, strikingly visual repeated images. Well, I I don't think I can break your brain, Richard. Break, 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 break. Break, break, break. Well, someone so, had to do it in this podcast. Well done, Paul. <laughs> Don't come near me. I've broken. Look. Uh, yeah, so that's what happens in this movie anyway, isn't it? Memetic. They all start uh, listening on the radio waves to this to these killer words, and they all start uh, b- mumbling and bumbling. And well, then... Once, once Laurel Ann to... starts going, she goes really crazy, doesn't she? Basically, she becomes a zombie. Yeah, and the reason is, why do they start killing each other? Apparently, it's an act of suicide. This madness is so painful that they have to lose themselves in another person. And that's why they chew out other people. I think they're trying to get inside other people or get to their words. I think that's... Get to the, yeah, that's the analogy. Yes, that's the metaphor. They're trying to get to other people's ultimate meaning. That was a bit gooey, I thought that. Uh, it was a bit, a bit daft. But anyway, so uh, before we hear the last of Ken and his sunshine copter, he's actually hidden away, hiding from the hordes. And uh, In some, a wounded, some wounded animal human who's already a zombie comes in and we get to hear this this wounded zombie's last words and slowly he wheezes and becomes a child yeah the last moments are are kind of like a a return to infancy but not an infant itself an infant occupying his adult voice it's like you know there's an infant 
inside his voice. Like those people that can talk while breathing in kind of thing. As he dies, something inside his voice becomes very, very childlike. So all this stuff is really well done, I thought, for, for, for a movie that doesn't really have a special effects budget and the fact it is a radio play, but with but filming the radio studio where the radio play is occurring kind of thing. I thought it was all very convincing. Now, a lot of the exposition at this point, after Laurel Ann loses her mind, is done by Dr. Mendez, a new character. Yeah. Well, so he, was there, he was mentioned at the beginning, wasn't he? Yes. We'd heard that his doctor's surgery had been surrounded, or there was a riot happening there. But he winds up crawling in through the window of the church <laughs> studio. And uh, he gets them to lock themselves into the soundproof studio while Laurel Ann is outside and she starts banging her head against the glass, doesn't she? Till she's bleeding from the mouth and nose. <laughs> now, she keeps banging against the, uh, against the recording studio recording studio glass and disappears on occasion and comes back. And at one point, I thought it was so funny, she comes back and she's bleeding from the mouth and like, has she been eating somebody? And then they, they, they turn to each other and say, what if she can read our lips? Which I thought was really <laughs> funny. And it takes it takes a definite turn towards black humour for the last 20 or 30 minutes of this movie. It becomes really, really funny. You get Dr. Mendez explaining his theories on what's happening, which is useful exposition. You get another, I think you get another couple of calls from Ken, don't you? At one point he's yeah. talking about the crowd saying, look out for U-boats. <laughs> and then they make a break for it. They leave the studio, don't they? And the doctor seems to be losing it as well. He keeps saying, breathe, breathe, breathe. So it looks like the doctor is is not going to make it. What's good is they get to debate. And I don't know who disagrees. I think the doctor, John Mendez, disagrees with the idea that if it found its way into language, we could it could find a way into reality itself. They're saying this is a god bug. I think he disagrees with that idea, doesn't he? I can't remember exactly. That's a nice big idea that they introduce and they just throw away. And then they have to say goodbye to Ken and his sunshine chopper. And of course, uh, you know, the shock jock, uh, Grant, who's newly arrived, doesn't really know about the relationship. So he's trying to condole, console the producer, saying, oh, God, you know, you've known each other. She's like, yeah, we've known each other for 17 years. Uh, you must feel so terrible, you know, losing your friend like that. She's like, he wasn't a friend. He was a child abuser kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, the jokes, are, the black humour jokes are coming thick and fast towards the end. It was a shock because like, it's not really the tone that the movie set out. That's in. true. That's true. Because yeah. then there's a moment, as they leave the soundproof studio, they run past, I think it was the girl who was singing in the amateur dramatics and she leaps on them and she starts beating up Sydney Briar, doesn't she? And he helps her off. And then they both start kicking her on the ground. Basically, then they kick this girl to death. <laughs> so anyway, so then the, the, the technical cowgirl comes once more banging into the window. They're like, they're like, should we be talking while she's here? And he's gone like, well, talk radio is high risk kind of thing. So there's little gags being thrown around. At some point... The doctor works it out. It's like, it's the English. It's not other languages. It's English that is infected. And he starts speaking Armenian. And then, of course, the other two, the producer and uh, and Grant, the, uh, the the DJ, they have to break out into the funniest franglais ever. <laughs> you know, It's like they're trying to speak French and they can't speak French. So at this point, I think the movie's just going for laughs, isn't it? I don't know. 
or bl- very, very black humour laughs. I don't know what it's going for at this point. The fact that he went for it so confidently kind of carries it, I think. This, they, end up, this... they end up locked in a storeroom, don't they? Somewhere in the yeah. studio. They've taken the whiskey with them at some stage that that Grant had at the start. It seems like the first thing he does is get some whiskey from, from Laurel Ann when he, when he started yeah. his shift. But uh, there's a point where she says, uh, they've decided not to speak at all. I think there's a point where she says, we're not talking and I'm drunk. This is how my last relationship ended. <laughs> <laughs> but then she starts succumbing, doesn't she? She starts repeating a phrase. I can't for the life of But kill, is it? Yeah. She starts Kill is kiss, kiss is kill. But, that, ah, but that's Grant's solution, isn't it? He starts to try and supplant the meaning. So that's why he says, kill is kiss, kill is kiss, kill is kiss. And he repeats that over and over to her. Now, you might think he's going bonkers too at this point, you see. But he's doing that trick, and they make this clear, don't they? They mention this in the film. He's doing that trick that you did as a kid, where you just repeat a word over and over again until all its meaning seems gone, and it's just words coming out of your mouth. But that's what they do anyway. That's what the zombies do, though. Yeah, it's weird. So I thought, I thought, is this mimetic virus really clever in that when you try to defend yourself against it, you become inculcated in its methods also, which is potentially, but it doesn't happen to him. In fact, he finds a solution by saying kiss is kill and kiss is kill and kill is, kill is kiss and kissing each other. They destroy whatever mimetic virus has entered into her brain. Yeah, yeah. So escape. the kiss, it's quite a romantic moment, I thought. I think they do have chemistry, you don't think so. And then they go and start broadcasting the same thing over the airwaves, don't they? There's a speaker outside the church, so they know the zombies outside will hear them. And of course, presumably everyone in Pontypool is tuned in. Cue credits, yeah? Pretty much. Yeah. Now, there's a kicker scene in the middle of the, uh, of the titles at the end, but I can't remember what it was about. There is an end credit scene. It's really weird. I think it relates to another movie that ah. this husband and wife team star in and was done by the same director. But I don't I think see. it's directly connected. He's, I think he's a gangster called Johnny Dead Eyes. And she's wow. his mole, isn't it? They're at a bar. But it wow. could also have just been them imagining it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it fits in. There was also supposed to be a sequel to this film. I don't think it got made. Called Pontypool Changes. I'm not really sure where you go with a sequel. It seemed to. I like the male lead here. You know, it reminded me of a time when boomers weren't just bad-tempered old people rattling on about things that they probably have no interest in rattling on about. You know, he's kind of, you know... He's a genuinely likeable... He's irascible. a cowboy hat-wearing, whiskey-slugging, yeah. Yeah. Uh, iconoclastic, free-thinking kind of boomer, you know. Back in the days when boomers were still rock and roll and not Zimmer frame, you know. And... <laughs> And, you know, yeah, people condemn them as a selfish, egotistical generation. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I think if all boomers were like him, they'd, they'd be much easier to get on with. And two, they could appreciate their culture, you know, their rebel without a cause culture a little bit more, couldn't they? I, also, I loved Laurel Ann, the actor playing Laurel Ann as well. I thought she was great. I think she's been in a number of movies by the same director as well. Yeah, I mean, it looks like we're about to do the scores, doesn't it? Cause we are about to do the scores, so I thought the acting in this was pretty excellent. I'm going to have to say eight. I thought the Doctor was a bit weird. It's the only yeah. mark, down mark there. If you depend, do you think part of this movie was supposed to be a surreal black comedy or not? Yeah. It has to be, doesn't it? It's yeah, just not so that then serious. I, then, then I think the absurdism of the Doctor was okay kind of thing. 
Yeah, he's almost like a Groucho Marx kind of character, do you know what I mean? He's a bit of a caricature, isn't he? Uh, Yeah. As you you say, Armenian, do you think, he was speaking? I think this movie couldn't really exist if it wasn't a sort of pastiche of the zombie movie. Mm. So in that sense, it has to be not taking itself too seriously. There is some tongue-in-cheek, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, it's a cool idea, and it's executed in a very intimate way because of the nature of the film, as you say. And we're all in the mystery with them. Yes. Low budget, certainly low budget. And that's to its credit, as again, I think. I'm going to go 7.5 on the acting. I was going to say, I think I said 8, didn't I? You I'll did say it, yeah. I'll stick with 8. So, how about then the scare factor? Yeah, scare and intrigue was fairly solid for me. You know, I, 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 there wasn't any really jump jump scare moments, but the tension did build quite nicely. So I'm going to score a, a, a veritable seven here. Yeah, they do certainly give the impression that, you know, outside the church doors, things are going to hell, and we don't really know why. I guess you never really feel that we're about to see it either, though. No. That's another interesting thing about it, is you feel that we are somewhat insulated from it, if, if only by the budget of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's reasonably creepy, isn't it? Especially as people... There's something quite fundamentally disturbing about Hmm. your language and your brain being affected in that way. And about the character who you like, such as Laurel Ann, who was quite likeable, you know, through the early parts of the movie, but then it's taken away from you. You know, she kind of dies before you. And that's, that's disturbing. So, yeah, I'll give it a seven. Now, how about the storyline? And to some extent, the ideation, this idea of hermetic virus. The ideation is great. The whole concept behind it is delicious and not very, not very often portrayed. But the storyline doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> as they try and close it up toward the end, tie up loose ends or make it make sense. It's, it probably can't be made sense of ultimately. And I don't really know where they were ending up going with it. But for trying... I've got to give them a seven for trying a big concept idea. I love the idea here, so I'm going to give it an eight. I thought the storyline, in basic terms, could I accept this? Yes, I could. Maybe more than than a movie like Watch, like Right at Your Door, I could accept this. Yeah, because we didn't really see how the outbreak was contained in the outside world. Was it the army intervention? You know, did everybody just die in the area? Did everyone speak French? Everybody start speaking French. We don't know it, but and so the fact that they decided not to show that, I think, wanted to their credit, but two, it allowed the story to remain believable. So, so yeah, an eight for me. Now, our last area is going to be what I don't know. Special effects? It didn't really have any, did it? No, but we often put production design decisions. Yeah, and stuff like we that. We had some, we had some scary zombies too. So yeah, it, we see uh, certainly Laurel and go crazy and act like a zombie, and the effects there are acceptable. But what's really nice about this is the whole radio station style that they've got yeah. and the sound design of it all, you know, and the way Grant Mazzy and, as you say, the way he extemporises and does his piece and performs, that's really entertaining, isn't it? And it feels good and it feels authentic. So is that a score, Richard? Yeah, uh, a score for special effects and stuff. I'll go seven. I'm going to go eight, not say much about it. Which leads us to final scores. For me, I really enjoyed this. It's an eight from me. Don't know about you, Rich. I'd go eight or maybe a nine. Whoa. Uh, An eight or maybe a nine because, let's face it, there's nothing quite like it. You know, it's unique. No. 
It is unique. And very well written, too. But maybe the radio play version would be even better. I don't know. It'd be worth mm. investigating. Well, I mean, where do you stand on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here, Richard? Radio or TV? Well, the TV show was trying try to do an awful lot, wasn't it? I mean, having a character with two heads. It's a big ask for a low-budget BBC sci-fi show. Not that low-budget. I think Zaphod's head cost what the rest of the series cost, let me put it that way. Really? <laughs> but, I mean, Marvin's great uh, in the TV show. You don't lose anything on the radio version of Hitchhikers. I think it's... Well, you lose quite a lot of content in the book. The book came afterwards. Did it? Hitchhikers was written as a radio play first. That's right, it was written as a radio play, yeah. Sorry. So I'm pro the radio pro the radio station, but I don't mind that the TV show exists. I don't think it spoils it. I just think it was quite ambitious. And is it is it the same here? I don't know, but you know, it's a story set in a radio station, and it probably work perfectly well if you were listening to it on a dark night on a country road. So it has this actually been made into a radio play by the BBC. I believe it was. Yes. Wow. Well, yeah, I think you know, Hitchhikers. I really like Hitchhikers the TV TV show. I don't know why. You prefer it to the radio? Yeah. I think... I, do you know why? Because I bought the book. I bought the paperback version of the book in 80... Must have been 82. When did the radio play come out? 79? That remember. sounds right. Yeah, I think that's right. 78, 79. But anyway, I bought the book whenever it came out because I I'd, I'd heard bits of the radio show and I think the book came out before the TV show. Am I right in thinking that? Or around the same time? Yeah, I, I think it's probably true. Yeah. But in any case, my book was the one with the kind of smudged psychedelic rainbow kind of thing. Yeah. Waxy, waxy one. Beautiful. Just beautiful. And the blocky, almost comic, but futuristic typeface. Yeah. And for me, that just said Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I think that design aesthetic, that book cover, it just said so much to me about space travel and about what a small Essentially, mobile phone is what we're talking. Should or, you know, a mobile phone encyclopedia shouldn't behave like and look like. Just that book of a design kind of put me in a place that the TV show took me to. That when I listened to the radio show again, didn't necessarily because the radio production is just so much more open ended. Yeah, by its hmm. definition. Yeah, yeah. So for that reason, I thought the TV show happened by chance to reflect the book design cover, which is a you know a nine year old, ten year old. I, I you know I was thinking in very concrete. You know, ideas are very concrete and formed, aren't they? Your first impression of something has to be in future versions has to be somehow confirmed, otherwise you won't accept future versions of something. You know, as, as a child. So I, I, for, to a child's mind, if somehow the TV show worked. I think I didn't hear the radio version of Hitchhikers. I did, but, well, I, I didn't hear it. I heard it at the same time as the TV. I think it was broadcast again around about the time the TV show came on again. It was rebroadcast, but I don't think I ever heard it. I mean, I wasn't in the habit of listening to Radio really? 4 as a kid. No, I read the book first. Wow. I then read the radio scripts. Wow. And I also listened to the audiobook read by Stephen Jones, who's Marvin, in the radio programme anyway, and in the TV show. And then I would have seen the TV show, I think, or around about then. Wow. And I've only, if I've heard the radio episodes at all, it's only been long after the fact. Oh, no, they're really good, though. I know, they are I know. good. Well, as an adult now, I recognise that the radio show is actually the best. But, and, as a but child, also, so revolutionary for the time. 
I mean, compared to everything else on the radio at the time. I know the radio show so intimately because I read the scripts. Same with me in Faulty Towers, yeah. Back to front. I, I could do entire sections of it, like, uh, yeah. off by heart. I understand because, you know, I, I got the scripts of Faulty Towers before I got the, D, the v, not the DVD, before I got the VCR tape. VHS. So, VHS, yeah. And so, yeah, it's different when you read it in, in, in script form, isn't it? It makes a different impression. Yeah, yeah. The other thing about the scripts is it has all of the sort of production directions and the music yeah. in it, which is amazing. That's it. Wow. That's it then. Pontypool. What on earth are we going to do next week, Paul? Ooh, is it up to me to provide you with three options? I fear that it is. Three options? Can I just dig out my options? I, I, I did. I have for once done my homework, Richard. You'll be glad to know. I think you might want to praise me for that. Hey, stop no, no. it right there. And so, uh, so yeah, I've got three options. I don't know what you think about these. Well, you wouldn't. I haven't said anything yet. The first one is anatomy. Anatomy. With Fran- Franca Patente. Potentially. She's in Run Logo Brand. I didn't spend that long re- researching these. It's a German so, film. It is We've, a German film. German horror film, okay. We've done Second Italian. Is, Why not do a bit of... Let, I say let's see German. Okay. The next one is Lucky. Several Lucky movies. This one is not the one about the geriatric 85-year-old about to die. This is about... Now, Lucky from 2020 is your second choice, Richard. Third choice is... I've got to be careful how I pronounce this. Is the Bear Barbarian? Barbarian Sound Studio. Movie? Sound Studio? Well, that was the one. Didn't I suggest that last week? You did, and yes. Rejected. I've included it. So, for your, for your delectation, I've included Barbarian Sound Studio. Well, you're throwing me a bone here, so I have to take it, don't I? So let's well, go to the, the Barbarian Sound Studio. Barbarian Sound Studio. Sounds like fun. I've got no idea what it's about. It's about a guy making sound, a soundtrack for a giallo movie, an Italian giallo movie. Oh. All right, then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join us next week for the Barbarian Sound Studio. Sounds like fun. Here's the end theme music in three, two, and one. Thank you.